Hello, everyone. Welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we travel an ancient pilgrimage route through forested hills and stay in private guest houses in local villages. Along the route, we'll pass numerous important shrines. In fact, the trail itself is part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it is a trail that emperors themselves traveled many, many years ago. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Kamano Kodo Pilgrimage Trail on the key peninsula in southern Japan. Welcome to the show, everyone. If you have ideas for episodes, feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Or if you've hiked a trail that we've covered and would like to be featured on our Walking the Walk segment, reach out to me as well. Speaking of our Walking the Walk segment, we don't have a Walking the Walk outcome or trail to report today, but we have a couple in the works. One listener reported that she is going to Nepal after hearing episodes 14 and 15, and she's going to hike the Manaslu circuit in Tsum Valley. So I hope on a future episode to report back on how that went. And today's guest has also planned an upcoming route on a trail we've covered, which we'll talk about. So we'll definitely have some Walking the Walk reports on future episodes. Also adding another segment that I will do from time to time called Answering the Inbox, or maybe I'll come up with a better name for it, but that's the name for now. Listener Kathleen Coakley reached out to ask about how she might go about training for her first overnight backpack trip. And I'll share the answer I gave her uh, at the end of the episode today. All right, on this episode, we have as our guest, listener Sam Peck. Sam is on to talk about his trek with his wife on the Kubano Kodo in Japan. It was great to hear from Sam and to learn about this route. I had on my planning list for the show, Japan pilgrimage route. I didn't know which route to cover exactly, but I knew I wanted to do that. And Sam reached out to me at the perfect time. And so I invited him on the show to talk about his trek. So why would I be thinking about a pilgrimage route in Japan? Well, my connection to the idea is somewhat tenuous, but here it is. Uh, Once upon a time, I discovered the art of writing haiku. And I don't mean the five, seven, five syllable stuff you learned in grade school, but rather the literary contemporary haiku that is written in English that probably has more in common with uh, Zen Buddhist philosophy than uh, simple rhyming types of short poems like limericks and other similar styles. So it's more along the lines of trying to capture a particular moment of awareness and recognize it. And for many years, I wrote and published haiku in a few journals that are dedicated to this poetic art. And the poetic tradition of haiku, of course, is from Japan and is most associated with a poet named Basho. And Basho lived in the 17th century and is most known for long walking trips and pilgrimages he took that helped to inspire a lot of his writing. 
And some of those walks are even walked today by haiku aficionados. There's a trail that's about 100 miles or so called the Basho Trail. And it's based on his book, uh, translated into English. The title is The Narrow Road to the North, where he traveled a good portion of Japan and wrote haiku based on his experience and and mixed it in with a, a narration of his travels. Just to give you a flavor of Basho, I'll read a translation of his most famous poem, Old Pond, A Frog Leaps In, Water's Sound. So just like the poem, I'll let that uh, reverberate and ripple out, and you can think about that. I'll say it one more time. Old Pond, A Frog Leaps In, Water's Sound. So maybe we'll get to one of the haiku pilgrimage routes on a future show. But on this episode, we are not here to talk about my obsession with short-form Japanese poetry. So let's talk about the Kumano Kodo. It all starts with the Shinto religion, which is the indigenous religion of Japan. Shinto has a belief system that predates recorded history. Nobody really knows when it started. And part of the reason for that is it revolves around Japanese land and seasons and the relationship with the people who live in it. It's a religion that recognizes divine spirits in trees, mountains, and waterfalls. So it's really a, a form of appreciation of nature on a spiritual level. And you could see why that might go back a long, long time. As a result of seeing divine spirits in trees and mountains and waterfalls, there is a custom of building a shrine next to these natural phenomena to celebrate them. And that will be important as we talk about the Kamano Kodo. But first, there's another influence that is really important in the development of Shinto and religion in Japan, and that's the arrival of Buddhism. Buddhism arrived in the 6th century to Japan, which is about a thousand years after it began in India. An interesting thing happened when Buddhism arrived in Japan. It didn't replace Shinto. Instead, it began to mix with it. And Buddhist figures adopted Shinto identities. Shinto spirits were thought to strive for enlightenment, as in Buddhism. And there arose a sort of combined religion called Shinbutsu Shugo that fused the two. Fast forward to the 9th and 10th centuries. By this point, many of these shrines that I mentioned, honoring natural phenomena, were built in the mountainous forests of the Ki Peninsula in southern Japan. The Ki Peninsula is a large peninsula in the southeastern portion of Honshu, Japan's main island. It's mostly dense, temperate rainforest. Uh, when typhoons hit Japan, this is where they hit. There's daily rainfall at times as high as 940 millimeters, or 37 inches. Think about that. That is an enormous amount of water to come down in a day. So you've got this very forested wilderness in southern Japan, and it has lots of waterfalls because of all the rain in the area, all the water, lots of tree growth, very green, it's rainforest. And so there began to develop a lot of these shrines around these natural phenomena, and these shrines were built in the spirit of this combined sort of fusion of Shinto and Buddhism. And what has arisen is today what is called the Kumano Sanzan, and this is in Wakayama Prefecture in the Key Mountains. And there are three primary shrines. There's the Hongu Taisha, Hayatama Taisha, and the Nachi Taisha. 
The Nachi Taisha is near the tallest waterfall in Japan. So now you've got these shrines dotting the landscape. And then fast forward to the 11th century AD, where some hard times hit Japan. And society was plagued by a lot of difficulty. At the time, Kyoto, which is not that far from this area, was the capital of Japan. And actually remained the capital until 1868, when it became what is today Tokyo. And because of the hard times, I guess somebody among the imperial family of the emperor's family got the idea that it might help their luck. They might get the blessing of the spirits if they were to do a pilgrimage among these shrines in these mountains in the rainforest. So from the 11th to the 13th century, the imperial family did a number of pilgrimages there. In fact, they did more than 100 pilgrimages over that period of time. And as you can imagine, as the imperial family kept coming to walk the trails of these mountains and see the shrines, more shrines came into existence. Accommodations developed to allow people to have a place to stay along their pilgrimage journey. And more pilgrims began to come. By the early 13th century, military rulers had taken over Japan and there was feudal rule, and the royal pilgrimages ended. But the samurai class and the aristocrats kept coming. And by the 15th century, this idea of the Kumano Kodo being a pilgrimage area started to spread to the general public. And again, the infrastructure for it began to increase. In the 19th century, the feudal system in Japan collapsed, and Japan began to open to the rest of the world, as many people may know. One thing that happened along with that, though, that was unfortunate, was the ordered separation of Shinto and Buddhism. For example, all the Buddhist objects were removed from the Hongu Taisha and many other shrines. And there was an enormous loss of cultural objects in these shrines. By the 20th century, the Kumano Koto area began to come into decline as a pilgrimage route. This decline continued up to World War II. After the war, there was a need for timber to help rebuild Japan. And so a lot of large companies moved into the area and started harvesting timber. And there was further neglect of the pilgrimage route. But by the 1990s, there began a revival in the form of tourism. And that's tourism both from within Japan and from outside of Japan to this area. This culminated in 2004 with UNESCO naming this area a World Heritage Site. There's a broader set of sites on the Key Peninsula, and the Kumano Sanzen is one of three designated areas that make up the UNESCO World Heritage Site. The other two are Yoshino and Omine and Koyasan. UNESCO, in its designation, talks about the authenticity of the site, meaning the continuing religious significance of the pilgrimage and the shrines. So when I think about the history of this area and of the Kumano Kodo, I see it as something that's sort of come full circle. It's an area that originally inspired literal worship of nature, where there were spirits of trees, mountains, and waterfalls, and then humans built shrines to honor this. But then their worship evolved, and then eventually emperors and aristocrats visited the shrines and walked the route. After that, ordinary citizens visited the shrines and walked the route. 
And it's hard to know how much of that was for the shrines and the route versus experiencing the mountains and rainforest. But then you look at it today and you have not just Japanese walking the route, but foreigners from around the world, even though they themselves are not of the Shinto religion or, or Buddhist religion, and they come to see the shrines. And more importantly, they come to walk in the woods, to see the mountains, the forests, and the waterfalls. And with this, the cycle continues. Nature inspiring spirituality, spirituality inspiring pilgrimage, and pilgrimage bringing us back to nature, all beautifully intertwined. So I think it's a cool thing to have a pilgrimage route based on a worship of nature. I think it's perfectly apt. And before we get into the conversation with Sam Peck, I thought I'd give you one more haiku. This is by another Japanese haiku poet named Santoka. And I think it perfectly encapsulates both spirituality and nature together. So here it is. The deeper I go, the deeper I go. Green mountains. I'll say it one more time. The deeper I go, the deeper I go. Green mountains. Santoka lived a pretty difficult life and a lot of things didn't go right for him. But for me, that poem is timeless and probably apt for a pilgrimage route through the rainforest-covered mountains of southern Japan. Before we jump into the conversation, one last thing I'll mention is a little bit about the fauna of the area. Sam wasn't sure too much about the fauna, except as you'll hear about the mosquitoes. But I did some research on this, and there's a few things that came up that I thought would be interesting to mention. A lot of butterflies in the area, as you might imagine, in a rainforest. Freshwater crabs, which is kind of cool. A lot of toads. There are poisonous snakes, a poisonous pit viper that the Japanese call mamushi. There are lizards and skinks. There is a raccoon-like animal called a tanuki. And then one thing that I thought was really interesting is there's a Japanese giant hornet. It can be up to four and a half centimeters in length. It's attracted to the color black, or maybe I guess that's the absence of color. So it's good to wear bright clothes, apparently, if you want to avoid the the giant hornets. And apparently they're more aggressive in September and October. Uh, and they're also considered a delicacy of the area. So if they don't bite you, you can bite them. And there are also raptors, like the black kite is one example of a raptor that lives in the area. So that's a little on the fauna of the area. So with that, now let's jump into my conversation with Sam Peck about the Kumano Kodo. Sam Peck, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. So I think it's really cool to have a listener on. One of the things that's cool is that I get to hear a different story people have about how they came to backpacking or how they came to hiking. And what's your story on coming to backpacking and then eventually to trekking? Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Boston originally, and I think I got into the outdoor adventure thing through Outward Bound. Have you heard of Outward Bound? Yes. Okay. So I feel like it gets a rap for the outdoor adventures for bad kids, but I don't think so. I, I don't think I was a bad kid. Is that really the rap it has that it's for bad kids? I, I thought it was for like, like cool kids that were into outdoor stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like, you know, inner city youth who need to work off their energy. But, but yeah, so I, I did multiple outward bound trips around New England and I really liked it. Like your recent guest, Max, I, I also went to school in New Hampshire. So I, I had very close access 
to the outdoors in that respect. And so you eventually, though, the trail we're going to talk about today is actually more of a trek than sort of a backpacking outdoor wilderness adventure. Was that the first time you did a trek in the the trail we're going to talk about in Japan, or have you done that before as well? And I wasn't sure the difference between trek and backpacking. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the way I think about it is treks are often where you stay in a hostel or a refuge or a hotel. And you're, I mean, typically you're not camping. You're basically doing day-to-day kind of like backpacking, but you're not camping. You're often staying in some sort of local facility. And those can be different depending on where you are in the world and how it's set up. But that's the way I think about it. And there are actually quite a few people who do treks who aren't really backpackers, who don't really like to camp. And vice versa, there are a lot of backpackers I've met who kind of think trekking is not real backpacking because it's not in the wilderness and you're not out there, you know, with your camping stove in the dirt. So I think there are some people who are kind of into one thing or the other. I love to do both. And it seems like you've done a little bit of both as well. So that's why I was curious about it. Yeah. So by that definition, I was mostly a backpacker most of my Mm -hmm. life. And in fact, this, the Kamano Kodo, which we're going to talk about today, was my first trek. Our last backpacking was, was in Banff in September back in 2018. We got rained on. It was very cold and it was very challenging. And so we were like, okay, let's try, let's try this, but with showers. Exactly. And- <laughs> exactly. Yes. I can tell you my wife is more interested in trekking than backpacking because she likes to have the hot shower and a glass of wine and you know all of that. So, so how did you learn about the Kumano Kodo? Yeah. So uh, I'd moved to California uh, a couple of years back and basically discovered that, hey, you can fly to Japan relatively direct flight and all. And so I emailed my work colleagues back in 2019. I said, what do you recommend I do in Japan? And most of the recommendations I got were around city stuff. A lot of recommendations around you know, food and seeing the, the cultural history of Japan. But one friend said, oh, there's this hike I did. And that seemed to me like a great way to see Japan kind of in a way that most people wouldn't have seen it. And so he tells you there's this hike. And then what do you do next? How do you figure out how to do this hike? Yeah. So he recommended to me the travel agency that, that I used and would recommend, Kumano Travel. And they, they took care of the rest. And, and I think, if I recall, we decided to do the hike in July. And then we did the hike in September, early September. So it was a very a quick turnaround and they took care of everything. They're not providing a guide or anything like that. It's more about making accommodations and, and organizing the stuff you're going to do along the way, but it's basically self-guided. That's correct. Okay. I noticed there are several different routes you can do for the Kumano Kodo. If you look at a map of it, it's kind of like a spider web with a bunch of different options, but there do seem to be a couple of main ones. It seems like there's the one that you did, which I think is called the Nakahechi Imperial Route. And then there was another one kind of through the mountains that seemed to be another primary route. I was just curious how you decided which particular route to do. Was that based on what your friend had done? Or did you just talk to the, the travel company and they helped you with that? So my friend also did Nakahechi, but I seem to recall that the Imperial Route was the main route. And you could do the the spurs off to the left and right, but it, this this was the main one. And, and this was the one that we had in mind and that Kumano Travel basically facilitated for us. Okay. And you hiked this trail with your wife. I did. Yeah. And was she also a backpacker before doing this trail with you? Yes. Yes, okay. she was. So, so she and I, we went to Banff together. We'd done multiple hikes together. I even proposed to her on the Pacific Crest Trail near Tahoe. Oh, cool. Near Tahoe. Where on the PCT were you? I remember on the map, it said Bear Creek okay. in the Desolation Wilderness. Oh, nice. Uh, 
So I don't actually know if it's like labeled. I don't know if you'd know if you were passing it, but that was the spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know the Desolation Wilderness well. That's a, a really cool part of the uh, PCT in the Tahoe area. Cool. Okay, so what did she think? I mean, we'll get into the specifics of the trail, but at the end of the day, did she really enjoy this kind of a hike as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, she did. And I, and I would say we are, we've gone complete switch from backpacking to trekking now in terms of what we're excited to do and what we're looking to try. So she, she had a great time with one big asterisk, which I will describe you'll later. Get, you'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about some of the logistics for doing the Kamano Kodo. First of all, time of year, when's the best time to do this hike? So I have learned that the spring and the fall are supposedly the best times to do the hike. If you go in the spring, you get the cherry blossoms, which are in that area. If you go in the fall, you uh, see the foliage, especially towards the late fall. You also get to avoid the the typhoon season, which we actually caught the uh, caught the back end of. So uh, yeah, so we we ourselves went in the Labor Day week, and it was the end of rainy season. We got rained on a little bit. It was a very humid. It was quite buggy, but it was not crowded at all. So I think that's the trade off. I think if you go during the high season, you'll probably see more people on the trail. You might have a little bit more trouble getting accommodations, but that's the best time to do it. Spring and fall. So you were kind of a little bit early in the high season. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Okay. And the summer just seems like too hot, too wet. No way. That's the typhoon season. Yeah. Okay. The, the thunderstorms are gnarly and, uh, and you will get downpoured on. And in the winter, there's snow or is it just really cold? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and that particular part of Japan, I don't know for sure. I think it could be cold. Yeah. Okay. And that, that brings me to a more basic point that I haven't really talked about with you yet, which is where in Japan is this? This is on a peninsula called the Wakayama Peninsula. It is basically due south of Kyoto and Osaka. And of course, in Japan, trains are excellent. It's about a one and a half hour train ride south of Osaka. Okay. And so you basically take a train from Osaka to get to the trail. We took a train to a local town called Tanabe. And then from mm-hmm. there, we caught the bus, and that took us directly to the small visitor center and the trailhead. How long was that bus ride? Was it a pretty easy ride? Oh, gosh, half an hour. Yeah, it was, it was easy. All right. Early fall seemed to be a pretty good time to go. Seems like spring might also be a good time to go, like you said, because of the, the blossoms. Now, let's talk a little bit about how much time this takes and the mileage. For the Nakahechi route, how many days of a trip is this? So we did it in just about three and a half days of hiking. Call it four full days. And roughly, what's the distance? I believe it's about 50 kilometers. We did something like 12 to 14 kilometers a day. But the local buses in the area connect the towns. So if you wanted to, you could trim off some of the distance, some of the hiking distance by taking a bus to, the, to you know a couple kilometers down and, and walking from there. All right. So we're talking about about a 50 kilometer trip over four hiking days. So it's about 30 miles. How are the ups and downs in this area? Is this a pretty mountainous area? So this is definitely a mountainous area. And full disclosure, you know, as I mentioned, I'm used to backpacking with entire gear on my back and pretty rugged terrain. So I think I might be biased in saying that it wasn't that difficult, but I think it is definitely moderate to difficult for most people. It is not that steep, though. So there's a lot of elevation gain and loss, but it's not that steep. The actual most difficult part about it is, and this is exacerbated if you go in the rainy season, is it can be very slippery going downhill. Sometimes there's 
mud on the on the path. Sometimes there's like these cobblestones that are hundreds of years old on this old pilgrimage trail that are just slick wet. And actually, I think the the guidebook actually says that slipping on cobblestones is is the most frequent injury on this hike. So they look really nice and they have some history to them, but can be actually quite dangerous. Yeah, it's manageable. You'll be going slow down these downhills. You're going to have places to stay at night, but is your gear shuttled or are you basically just carrying what you need for four days on your back, but not needing sleeping bags and not needing tents and that kind of thing? Right, right. Yeah. So we didn't need tents. We, we stayed at guest houses every night. We didn't get the shuttle service. We actually just asked our Airbnb host in Tanabe to hold our bags and swung through on the return trip, got off the train station, got our bags and got right back on the train. In terms of, of day gear, again, I'm used to the multi-day backpacking, but it was, it was very light. It was, a, it was a day pack. We packed water. We packed the lunches that were given to us by the guest hosts. Brought rain ponchos, of course. As I mentioned, the walking sticks are quite important, navigating the, the downhills. And bring bug spray. Bug spray is very <laughs> important, especially if you go in early September. Is it mosquitoes only or are there other things? So there are mosquitoes. But there are, I think, I, I thought they were horseflies, but they might have been wasps. They're pretty gnarly. It wasn't that bad for me. And what about navigation? It seems like, I mean, this is a trail that uh, seemed, from what I was reading, is pretty well marked. Yes. So this trail is extremely well marked. Say of, of all the trails I've done, this one's very well marked. It's so well marked that if you're going the wrong way, which we did, I think, once or twice, you know, there's signs saying you're heading off the trail you'll get reminded to go back. I looked up the online map and printed out sections and I and put them in Ziploc bags. I ended up not actually using those because I just got a guidebook at the trailhead for the equivalent of a dollar and just used that the, the entire time. And so it tells you exactly where to go. It indicates the locations of water and tree stores and bathrooms and shrines, which is important. So I highly recommend getting the guidebook at the trailhead. And is that an official Kamano Koto guidebook? I believe it is, yes. Okay. The route markers, it seems in some of the pictures that they're actually stones. There are, yeah, there are stones. There are wooden signs. There are like homemade wooden signs because you're walking through basically people's driveways and, and backyards and sections of these, these tiny little mountain villages. And they have homemade signs saying, you know, this is the Kamano Koto left and right. Oh, that's cool. All right. And so we talked about getting there. Basically from Osaka, you're heading south an hour and a half on a train, and then you've got a, a short bus ride. Anything else people should think about as far as getting there? Two other notes on that. The first is I mentioned that the, the public transit infrastructure in Japan is excellent. Absolutely wonderful. It is in Japanese, though. I, I do recommend printing out all the timetables ahead of time. But if the train says it's going to leave at 156, it'll leave at 156. Second thing that I would recommend is we ordered ahead. This is just general flying in, into Japan advice. We ordered ahead a something called a pocket Wi-Fi. And when we landed at the airport in Osaka, we went to the post office and picked up a little device that basically converted the local LTE into a Wi-Fi signal that we could use. So I, I do recommend using that. We didn't change our phones or anything like that. We just connected to this pocket Wi-Fi. Oh, that's really cool. So it's basically like you have your own little hotspot for your Wi-Fi that allows your American phones to work the whole time you're there. Exactly. And, and it works throughout the trail as well because it's, you know, it's, it's rural, but it's not completely remote. You just mentioned that everything's in Japanese on the train schedules, and that made me think about the trail markers. It sounded like you were able to determine that you had gone off trail 
and gone the wrong direction. Were the signs in English and Japanese? Yes. So yes, they were. Most of them were. In fact, this was kind of interesting. I, the, many of the signs, especially in this rural part of Japan, were in English. And don't quote me on this, but I, I think it's related to post-World War II reconstruction, actually. Yeah, some of the highway signs are even on, in both English and Japanese. So it, it is not difficult to navigate. Are there any permits required to do this hike? Not that I know of. Our travel agency, Kumano Travel, might have arranged something for us, but I don't know for sure. Okay. And so talk a little bit about the accommodations along the way. You've mentioned that there are guest houses. And just from my looking at some of the information you sent me, they seem to be a very different kind of experience than most Americans might be used to if they haven't been to Japan. So I'd be interested to hear about, about that experience. It is culturally very different. The guest houses, they are local Japanese homeowners who have opened up a, a room for guests. So some of the uh, Japanese cultural customs are in place, such as sleeping on floor mats, being very clean, taking your shoes off at the door, that sort of thing. And what about the food? The food is excellent, especially if you like fish and sushi. I'm not sure if this is expected for most treks, but they feed you dinner every night. It's part of the cost of, of staying there. And, and most places give you uh, a lunchbox, literally a, a bento box you carry with you on the hike for your next day. Do you need to make reservations in advance? You definitely need to make reservations in advance since these are mostly like, I think they're, they're not businesses. They might be businesses. I, I think mostly they're, they're homeowners and the Japanese equivalent of Airbnb. We went strictly through Kumano Travel, who uh, called up the hosts and, and arranged for everything. What kind of cost is there for the, the guest houses? So if I recall, and this is through the travel agency, it was it totaled to about $100 American a night. That includes food and lunch for the next day. And that was for two people? Uh, I think it was 100 per person. Okay, 100 per person. All right. And you mentioned the sleeping on the mats. From what I could tell, there's basically these sort of straw kind of mats. And then on top of them, they put a futon. Is that how it works? It's, it's kind of like uh, those inflatable hiking mats that I would carry. And then you put sheets on top of them. And you're supposed to only need one mat, but in the middle of the night, I, I got up and went to the closet and stacked a bunch of mats underneath me. So I used like three or four mats. I hope they never found out. All right. I did notice that there is camping actually available. So for those who really feel like they need to stick to camping, that is a possibility, I think. And there are some official campgrounds. You guys didn't do that, of course. Do you think it makes more sense, though, for someone maybe who's never been to Japan to, to have more of the cultural experience of staying with a family's you know, in the, in the guest room of a family's home the way you guys did? I, I recommend staying at the guest houses for that very reason. But one other logistical challenge of, of actual camping is that you'd have to carry all your gear out there or, or buy the gear in the local area. And since we combined this trip with, with some city tourism as well, that was just something we didn't want to schlep around. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any other cultural aspects that people should be aware of in thinking about sort of behavior along the trail or, or you know, day-to-day -day hiking in rural Japan? So uh, I had this same question. I remember actually like listening to many podcasts back in 2019 about Japanese culture. There are cultural aspects, but they summarize to if you have an open mind and if you are polite, then you will be fine. The people of Japan are extremely friendly. They, they are talkative in what little language you might share. Yeah, if you're open-minded enough to be thinking about this hike and going to the Kamano Kodo, you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. And I think that's true from my experience anywhere in the world. 
you know, people have a lot of fears, I think, about going to certain parts of the world because of things might be so different culturally. But if you have an open mind, I think you're right. It's, you're going to be fine. You mentioned the, the little common language you might have. What can you say about that, about getting around for someone who doesn't speak Japanese? My biggest advice is prepare ahead of time what your plan is going to be. You know, make sure, like I said, print out the timetables of, of the train and bus stations and the maps and, and kind of what your plan is going to be. I did also print out like a one-pager cheat sheet of, of Japanese phrases, especially in the cities where, where tourists are more frequent. You know, the stores know how to, they'll be able to communicate with you. Google Translate is also very important. Google Translate has this, has this little camera feature where you can hold it up to the signs and it converts it to English. It's not perfect, but it is enough to get by. You can download the translation book in the app ahead of time and you'll be good to go. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the area being somewhat mountainous, but not terribly steep. What else can you tell us about the what this area looks like? You said there's villages. Is it is it mostly forest? Is it mostly farms? Is it, you know, what does this area feel like and look like? Yeah. So I would describe this area as not quite rainforest, but I think quite close to it. So it is uh, mountainous. It's blanketed by trees. In this particular area, there aren't any mountains that are, have mountain peaks above the tree line. The forests are are deciduous, though there are, you know, bamboo groves and things like that. There are villages and and terraced fields, and there are streams and valleys and rivers galore. It's very cool to see. There are villages and there are like hidden villages where the where people used to live but moved out. You'll walk through the the ruins of tea houses and things like that. Regarding flora and fauna, I mentioned the deciduous trees and bamboo. For animals, we didn't see anything big on this trip. Don't know if there are bears in the area. We did see some farm animals. What kind of farm animals do they have there? We saw goats in people's backyards. Okay. One of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier is that there this is a, a route that people have done for a long time for pilgrimage reasons. And you also mentioned, I think, shrines. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw with respect to, to that part of the trip? Yeah. So Shinto is a cultural religion in Japan is, is very fascinating. And there are, are shrines all over the place, including in the cities. The history of, of this particular route, I believe, is it's the route that the old emperors of Kyoto would take to go to the various shrines along the path. And so there are big shrines that are like little castles, you know, surrounded by cities. And then there's little humble shrines that are just in the middle of the woods that have some story associated with them. So we made it a point to visit every single shrine. You leave just a few coins on the shrine. What do the shrines look like? Well, so the big ones are entire structures with bells in front of them, you know, big bells that you you pull down you can and pull and, on a you pull on a gong yeah, or something or yeah. or pull on a rope. Yeah. I think that's to summon the the spirits you'll be praying to. And there's furniture and construction, you know, on the inside and the outside of the building. And there are attendants, and I think people live there, although I'm not sure. The small shrines are very humble. It can be just a, a little, it kind of looks like a, a toy version of a large shrine. And instead of a, a big rope bell, they have like a little, you know, jingle bell. I would imagine there's no attendant at the little tiny shrine. No, there aren't. One, okay. one, yeah, one of the things we wondered was, you know, there's, there's money at these shrines. So, of course, at the big shrines, you know, I don't think anybody would be tempted to steal, but... Even at the little shrines, there's always money there. So I, I don't actually know the story of where that money goes. Okay, well, something we'll have to look into. All right. 
you've mentioned, we've talked about the shrines. Are there other things in the area that you guys saw that maybe maybe they're not on the trail or other sites you saw before or after the hike that people should think about seeing if they're going to be in this part of Japan? So we flew into and out of the airport in Osaka and spent two days in Kyoto and one day in Nara. These are very large cities, but they are worth seeing for the, the cultural history of them. I, I think the one highlight I would recommend is in Kyoto, there's a, there's a hill that you can climb and there's a, a bunch of monkeys up there and you can go see and play with the monkeys. I think it's called a Rashiyama, Rashiyama, but I highly recommend that. So people should definitely set aside a couple of days on the front end and the back end to be able to see the cities. Yes, I do recommend it. There's a lot else to see in Japan. That was our region. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the itinerary. Maybe you can take me through the four days and just sort of a rough version of, of what the hike might be like. Sure. So I mentioned our very first day, we came from an Airbnb in the local town of uh, Tanabe and I took a bus to the trailhead. And I didn't know this ahead of time, but there is a guest house there that you, you can buy bug spray if you, if you were <laughs> wise. That's where we got our, our map and as well as the stamp book. So I mentioned the reason we wanted to visit every shrine was because these shrines also have a stamp. So you can kind of stamp your progress and it's kind of a got to catch them all type feature. Oh, kind of like the Camino de Santiago with it's famous for its stamp book for each place you go to. Exactly. Yes. Actually, I, I, I think the Camino de Santiago is the, is the other pilgrimage route that is a World Heritage site. And so there are many comparisons between this and that route. Okay, so you get your stamp book, and then you're ready to go. So you get your stamp book, you go right up the mountain, and and start hiking into the wilderness. After a few hours, you'll pass by uh, a village or two, and this is where you kind of walk right next to people's houses, and, and they'll say hi, and they're just living their life. Do they know that you are someone who's doing, I think they would assume that you are someone doing the route as a tourist, and they're probably happy to see people coming to their area. Yes, they, they know. They're very friendly, and they say hi. There's a little grocery store and bathrooms that you can use and, and vending machines everywhere. Did I mention that? There are vending machines almost everywhere in Japan, and they're great. Uh, I've heard that rumor. <laughs> I've heard that. I don't even know if it's is it Mount Fuji or one of these famous peaks. I heard that you go to the top and there's vending machines. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think the vending machines were how we got our coffee, if I recall correctly. Those were very welcome. Okay. And then you, where did you stay that first day? So we ended in a town called Chikatsuyu, and coming down to the town was the moment of the trip where it rained a little bit that day, so there's this wonderful rainbow for the town over the mountain valley that we came into. But yeah, so we stayed we stayed at a guest house there. That was very nice. Okay, and then day two from, it seemed like a longer day maybe, more mileage. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this was Chikatsuyu to Hongu. This was the day where we were like, okay, uh, let's take a bus, because I think the first five kilometers or so, we're along the road. It's not like you're getting buzzed by traffic. This, these are roads, but they're not that crowded. So still, instead of walking along the, the road, we, we opted to take a bus, you know, one stop or two. So, so just avoided the, avoid the road walking in an easy way. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that's right. I think it was, it was something like 16 kilometers or, or so. It was the longest day. There were some cool things about this day, like part of the actual Kamano Kodo goes along in like an early 20th century highway. It's not used anymore, but there are still, you know, metal signs overhead that highlight the path. And there's kind of tunnels off to the left that are completely blocked. And this is walking on pavement for a couple kilometers. It was very cool. It felt like walking in a post-apocalyptic place because everything was overgrown. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. This was the day that my wife had some bug issues. And so I believe 
the main issues did come from the mosquitoes. My wife, I think she has some gene or something where the mosquitoes are just attracted to her. So <laughs> she always gets bitten more frequently than I. But also, I think there was something about the, you know, the exoticness of the of these mosquitoes that just caused her feet to have like a, a severe allergic reaction. And so this is where we got some major blisters. So her feet swelled up where it affected the way she was able to walk in the shoes. Yes. And then she got blisters as a result of that. Yes. Yeah. That's we were awful. looking at the pictures the other day. It's good that this is a podcast. <laughs> Wait, so what did you guys do about it? How'd you deal with it? Well, so we muscled through almost to Hongu. Actually, while we were taking a break, some passersby, some local Japanese people noticed that we were suffering and actually gave us anti-itch cream without, you know, without us prompting. That makes me think you were not the first person to have had this problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we pushed through to Hongu and went straight to a local pharmacy. And this is where Google Translate came in really handy. We were, you know, typing in antihistamine and pointing the the phone at the at the folks. And they, they understood pretty quickly what was going on and was able to get us medicine that, that mostly solved her problem. Oh, that's great. Okay. But I mean, the blisters you're going to still have to, I guess, tape up and deal with for the rest of the trip. Yes. Yeah. We also got moleskin and, and some bandages for that. Okay. All right. And then day three is Hongu to Koguchi? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the town is called Koguchi. So I remember this being a relatively shorter hike. And this one, I think, was entirely in the wilderness. So I think you could see towns from the mountaintops, but we didn't walk through any villages. The highlight here was the town of Koguchi itself which we, you know, we ended early in the afternoon. So I got to swim in the river, which I really liked doing. And, it, and the water was wonderful. And we stayed at a uh, place, which was an old high school. And so, yeah, that's, that was your guest house was an old high school. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our bedroom was, you know, one half of a classroom it had air conditioning. I think you had to pay for the air conditioning. I think that's normal. We had dinner that night in the cafeteria. Did it feel like you were in school again? Like you were a kid in school again? Or something? How did that feel being in a high, like an old high school? It's, it's, a, it's a high school, but it's a, it's a small, you know, humble L-shaped high school with maybe like four okay. classrooms or something like that. So it was, it was small and it was really cool. And I, this is another, I guess, aspect of, of trekking is you might have experienced where you, you have this kind of cohort effect where since you're walking yeah. in one direction, you know, you see the same people over and over again. Yeah. So did you find other travelers that were sharing a similar experience that you were able to talk with and commiserate with? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, as I mentioned, we didn't go in, high, we didn't go in the highest of high seasons. So there was not that many people uh, on the trail. And I think the guest houses, you know, we had some friends in the guest houses, but no line for the showers or anything like that. And they were public showers. But yeah, there were maybe like five or so, or maybe six you know, folks in our in our cohort who were staying with us. This is where we met a couple who told us about San Camina Santiago. Also told us about Tour de Mont Blanc. That's how uh, we found out about it. Oh, cool! And that's something you're now thinking about doing, right? That's right. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get to that one as well. All right. So, so you stay in the high school, and then the last day is what? Yeah, the last day I believe is the shortest. It's kind of like almost like a half day, and it goes right up over the mountain again. Once again, no villages, but there are vending machines in the hills there. You end at Nachi, which is this stunningly beautiful complex. Very touristy, lots of people, but just beautiful waterfalls and everything like that on the on the other side of the peninsula. That's got to feel pretty cool to end in sort of like a, a highlight moment. 
Are there people there who realize that you guys are finishing up this pilgrimage hike and, or, or is it just sort of like you're walking into the middle of a tourist situation? Yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking that cause the stairs, you know, the step steps come right off the mountain into this large public space. Anyone seeing us come down those huge steps were probably thinking that, oh, they actually came from the mountains. But we were quickly lost amongst the other day packers. Did you do any side trips during the hike or was it pretty much just follow the trail and keep going? There were some side trips, but we weren't very motivated to do that. We, we did have an itinerary we, we wanted to keep. We also wanted to make sure we didn't miss any shrines along the stamp book. So that was like, OK, let's let's make sure we get every shrine. Okay, so I feel like I have to ask now, why was this getting every shrine in the stamp book so important to you? <laughs> oh, you got it. it it's collection. Got to catch them all. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I, I totally would do the same thing. I was just curious to hear what you would say. Yeah, no, no, that, okay. uh, that we, we still have that stamp book. It was great. Yeah, it's a great memento. And you've, I, you know what it is for me when I do something like that is I feel like I didn't miss anything. Yep. That'd be the worst. Oh my gosh. If we actually missed a shrine. (laughs) Because then somebody would tell, you'd meet somebody 10 years from now and they're like, oh, that's the coolest one. You missed the coolest (laughs) one. That's what they would say, no matter which one it was. Yeah, I'd have to hop on a bus and head to middle of Japan just to get it. Yeah, right. Just to hit that one. All right. So as you look back on this, why is this a trail people should think about doing? What is unique about it? What makes it something that's worth the time? Yeah, so what makes it unique, in addition to it just being in Japan, which if you've never been, it's a great way to see the country, right? You'll you'll see you fly into Japan and you'll see the big cities, but this is a way to see rural Japan, which is a which is absolutely great if you've never been there. It's one of two world heritage sites, as we talked about. Meaning one of two trails that are actually a world heritage site on their as a trail. That's right. That's right. I think the coolest the coolest part about it is that is the history of this hike. Emperors walked this path a thousand years ago. Don't you want to, you know, walk in the footsteps of emperors? No, that is cool. Yeah. And, and what, is there a particular moment or memory that stands out that, that really, in, when you look back on the trip that you think about as sort of a highlight for you? Yeah. So after every vacation, every hike we do, we always print out like a, a triptych of, you know, of images of the hike that we keep up in our kitchen. The big picture on, the, on this triptych is the, is the rainbow above Chikatsuyu. And that, I think for me, was it, was it was just a wonderful, it was the end of the first day, coming down in the valley, the rain is over, the sun is shining, and the rainbow is very bright. Maybe you've had this experience on other hikes too, but I, I have this happen to me a lot where I'm sort of, my head isn't 100% into the hike until a particular moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. And sometimes it can be like that, like this sort of highlight at the end of a first day. And then you're like, oh yeah, I'm out here walking for days. This is fantastic. And I just had this amazing moment. And it takes something like that rainbow maybe sometimes to really appreciate where you are and to, and to sink into it and to really leave everything else behind. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. For me, on the backpacking trips, it usually kicks in around day four. Like I've noticed like, yeah. <laughs> it kicks in around day four. Yeah. This was the first day for us, but I think it was the fact that it came after three adrenaline-fueled days of, of navigating Japan and catching the trains and and solving all these little problems, these you know these just little translation problems like oh how do, how do I how do I buy a train ticket? To finally be on the trail, I, I'm so far removed from my work concerns here in the United States. So I think that yeah, that's the way to do it. Okay, and so you've you've talked about the whole mosquito situation and the blisters, and that was probably something you didn't expect. Was there anything else that happened that was totally unexpected? No, I I, I would say the you know there, there's bug spray at the the visitor center. 
at the trailhead. <laughs> okay. You know what? You've you've now mentioned bug spray a half a dozen times. So anyone who does this trip without bug spray, sorry, you've you've been warned. That's right. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, talking, like that's a... I'm talking to my past self because my wife did say get the bug spray. So I'm talking to uh, my past self. And, uh, you know, okay. Yeah. All right. And so, and I also often ask, what would you have done differently? It sounds like picking up bug spray would have been something you would have done differently. <laughs> yeah, definitely bug spray. I, I think I really would have, in retrospect, if I, if I could have swung it, I, I really wish I went in late fall. And I'm, you know, I'm from New England, so I've seen the New England foliage and how awesome that can be. I am super curious to see what that looks like in Japan. So this is a hardwood forest that does have fall colors. It's not like a pine yeah, forest. that's right. Okay, cool. All right, well, that's something to for people to think about. All right. Well, Sam, thank you for telling me about the hike. But while I have you, I've got a few more questions. What is the next trip on your list? So the next trip is the aforementioned Tour de Mont Blanc. You heard about it from someone while you were in Japan, but this is pre-pandemic. So now we're kind of getting to a point where maybe you're comfortable going to Europe. That's right. When are you going to do that? So we're going to go in August uh, this year. I I dropped the deposit with, with Max uh, your recommendation. Oh, cool. uh, so it's going to be me, my wife, and a friend. Looking forward to being featured in your new Walk the Walk section. Yes. Yeah, so that's cool that you're going to go do that. I hope that the episode was helpful in sort of thinking about what you might do. Yeah. I mean, what these episodes do is they they make thinking and planning about hikes a lot less intimidating, right? Like to to go on a hike in rural Japan on its face can be really intimidating, but actually with just a little bit of prep and a little bit of reading and for us, an agency, but you don't have to go with an agency. You can pull it off. So that's why I really like listening to you talk about these trips and and, and your guests, because I think it makes it really accessible to think about trips anywhere in the world. Well, I really appreciate that. And it's a good way to think about it. It's it's not a way I had thought about it, I think, directly. But I, I think that's part of the main purpose of it is to really get people to feel like, yeah, I can do this. And and for a long time, I did a lot of backpacking trips in California, but didn't really venture beyond that. And so for me, once I started doing more international trips and in other states and things like that, you know, it was intimidating at first. But, you know, once you talk to somebody who's done it, you feel like, okay, I can do this. And so I, that's great to hear. And I hope the show does make it more accessible to people. All right. Next question. What is a backpacking meal you could eat every day? So we have stumbled upon, I'm sure other people have done this as well, but the, the magical combination of what we call soup and grains, which is basically some pasta or some grain that you can cook at, at altitude, then you dump in the, the powder of the soup packet. You can buy these at any grocery stores. It's so good. We'd eat it at home, theoretically. All right. Okay. And so, okay, but you, that's easy and that's inexpensive, but you actually like it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Is it's that what great. you're telling me? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a very good cook, but maybe the food before was, was not very good, but yeah, this is great. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. All right. Last question for you. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done when you were hiking? Okay. So this is not a during hiking story, but this is adjacent to the hiking story. Okay. So the night before me and two friends were about to hike a section of the Durango to Denver trail in Colorado in 2000. Colorado trail. That's right. And night before we were at the hotel and just preparing, you know, our bags are exploded. We're moving stuff from boxes into baggies for the trip. And my friend says he wants to test the bear spray. He had never Uh used the bear spray before. I had never used the bear bear spray before. I don't know why I went along with it, but he, uh, he discharged the bear spray in the hotel room 
He pointed it down into the sink. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen bear spray go off. It ricochets out of the curvature of the sink, all over the walls, all over the mirrors. We start crying and coughing immediately. We run to the windows. We try to open the windows, but the you know most of these hotels like you can't actually open the windows. We're blasting the AC, trying to scrub all this brown bear mace off the walls. We're still crying and coughing. We open the doors just to get some ventilation, and some families start coming out into the hallway. Like the dads are asking, "Is the building on fire?" And like <laughs> their kids are coughing and crying as well. We lay low in the lobby for a couple hours. The manager chides us asking us what the heck we were thinking, calling us the pepper spray boys. Was it all over your gear too? Was it like in your backpacks and the smell of it? And the Fortunately, it was on that side of the hotel room, but that okay. stuff spreads pretty quick in the atmosphere. I have to admit, I've had the thought before, because I have one that's like expired. I have one in the garage. It's an old bear spray that's expired. Yeah. And I've, I've had the thought that I should go outside and like spray it against a tree and just try it or something. I don't think in my wildest nightmare I ever thought about doing it indoors, <laughs> particularly not in a hotel room. That's right. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. Don't, don't do it indoors. Okay. I think we're still on the no-fly list at Best Western. Nice, nice. Were you able to do the trip and everything was oh, fine yeah, everything else, that? Everything else is fine. I think these things are like one shot, so I don't think the bear spray would have worked again, but no problems. All right. Well, that's, uh, yeah. I don't even know if there's a lesson there or people would just know better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know who needs to hear that. We certainly did. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, Sam Peck, thanks for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thanks again to Sam Peck for coming on the show. So I hope Sam and I have inspired you to hike the Kamano Kodo. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, Give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to return to listener Kathleen Coakley's question about training for her first backpacking trip. So I'll summarize what I told her when I responded to her email. Someone once told me the best way to train for climbing mountains is climbing mountains. And so I do think that getting out and hiking is really the best way. But for some people, I understand that may be hard to do at certain times of the year. For example, Kathleen lives in an area where the weather can be snowy in the winter. And it can be difficult if you're training for a spring hike to get out in February, for example. So if that's your situation, what do you do? Well, first, obviously try to get out as much as possible on the weekends or when you have time, if the weather allows. It's a good idea to wear a day pack with weight in it. What I'll sometimes do is put a dumbbell wrapped in a towel so it doesn't poke my back and stick that in my backpack. Or you could use a heavy bag of flour or grains or books, or some people will take like a big bike lock chain and put that in their backpack and wrap it in a towel. Also, I would definitely hike hills if you can find them, even if that means going up and down the same hill. So I used to do that when I trained for a longer trip. Uh, there's a good hill near my home and there's a trail on it. I would go up it, I'd go back down it, I'd go up it, I'd go back down it. Do that a few times. And it was a couple of miles, I think, to get out to where the hill was. So I got a good hike in getting out there and getting back as well. If you are the kind of person that likes to go to a gym, another thing you could do is just do a stair climber or an elliptical or an inclined treadmill at the gym. 
But if you do that, you could wear the day pack and the weight also and work to increase your time slowly so that you're doing more and more, whether you're doing it in a gym or outdoors. You could also do some leg training, such as dumbbell squats or deadlifts or something like that. But to be honest, I don't think it's really necessary if you're getting in the cardio in the way I'm describing, because your legs are going to be getting a good workout anyway. The key is just to make sure that the cardio includes hills and extra weight. All that said, for your first trip, please don't try to do big mileage. I would even suggest doing much less mileage than you think you can handle. For example, if you think you can handle 10 miles a day, do six. Lots of other things come up on a first trip, right? Like dealing with what you need to pack and how to pack it, how and where to pitch your tent, cooking and camp chores, etc. So it's best on a first trip to make the actual hiking easy. Plus, mileage compounds any problem. For example, if your socks or your shoes aren't perfect, the difference between a six-mile day and a 12-mile day might be getting a lot of blisters. Or if your pack doesn't fit right, you can end up with rubbing against your hips that can become really painful over time with longer mileage. I'm not saying any of these things will happen to you. It's just that less mileage reduces the chances and gives you an opportunity to really figure out how to be a backpacker before you try to put in serious mileage. The key really is to make the trip well within what you can handle for your first trip. This is not the time to push your limits. Really what you're trying to accomplish is to have a good time so that you'll want to go back and do it again. So those are my thoughts on training for a first trip. You could probably train a month or two out before the trip, depending on how often you're able to get out. All right. Thank you to Kathleen Coakley for asking the question. And I hope that was helpful. If you are interested in hearing my thoughts on different topics related to backpacking or trekking or trip planning or any of the stuff we talk about on the show, reach out to me uh, at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer the question on the show if I think it might be helpful to other listeners. Before I go, I want to remind you about Outdoor Herbivore at outdoorherbivore.com. As you know, Outdoor Herbivore gives a 10% discount to Trailsworth Hiking listeners. So take advantage of that as you start to prepare for the summer hiking season. The discount code is TWH10P. So that's Trailsworth Hiking 10%. As I've said before, they make great vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals, but you don't need to be a vegan or a vegetarian to love them. Everybody will enjoy these meals. They have high quality ingredients and lots of calories. And the way they're packed is really efficient too. So they fit in a pack or in a bear can uh, so that you can bring several of them on the trail for a multi-day hike. The discount code again is TWH10P. So check them out, Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. I think I've also mentioned previously, they don't give me anything to say this. I say it because I buy their products. I'm a customer and they're offering me a discount that I can pass along to you as a listener. So I hope it's helpful to you. And that's the reason I mention it. All right, let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we'll spend several days hiking through a beautiful desert. As we hike through desert canyons and view sandstone towers and plateaus through a forest of pine and juniper. This will only be our second episode in the desert. Bonus points if you can name the other desert hike that we've covered. On this hike, we'll enjoy solitude and sleep under a starry desert sky.
as we cross one of America's finest national parks. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Trans-Zion Trek, also known as the Zion Traverse, in Zion National Park in southern Utah. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or if you have ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.